Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and we are coming to you live in the studios at Factoria, Washington. Eric, Live. Welcome. I love it. Uh, this is a first for the show. Yep. Absolutely. In the inaugural live show. And hopefully there will be more <laughs> yeah, after exactly. we do this for a while. I was just listening to, uh, prior to coming on the air to the weather. You know, it's been a really rough spring. I guess May was the wettest in 75 years as far as the amount of rain that we've had here. Um, great for the plants, but, you know, I want to get outside. I want to get outside on a weekend at least. Right. Well, i uh not going to get any sympathy here. I know <laughs> that, and I'll probably get a lot of people turning the show off when I say this, but uh, we miss a lot of this down in Palm Springs, and oh, we're yeah. back, and we do feel it because, yes, we had all this rain in the month of May, it's interesting. I've talked to some people who said, um, you know, since 1948, I go, yeah. And then they would say, well, that was when Truman was president. Who's Truman? You know, <laughs> but that's how far this goes back. This is a terrible May we've had. Oh, so, well, but we have a great show. Yes, up we today. do. Absolutely. And you are going to start that out and tell us about your guest today. It's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, so we have a sister station here, which is Warm 106.9, and they're doing Operation Teddy Bear Lift. And you're going to learn all about this campaign that we've put together in large part with the help of not only the Ukraine Association of Washington State, but also a company called, it's, it's pronounced SECO, SECO Logistics, but it's spelled S-E-K-O. And this is a company that basically gets products, serv- products not services, but products from A to Z, whether it be from plane freighters, trains, whatever it takes. And uh, they have donated people power and capital and services to help us get 10,000 teddy bears to the displaced children in Ukraine. One more time, 10,000. 10, and that's a lot of bears. And I'll tell you, it's no easy feat to get something from Seattle. You think it's, you know, you just don't call up uh, you know, Amazon or, 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 you know, go to FedEx. It's, it's quite a process to get the, any kind of shipment like that from, say, Seattle to a war zone. Yeah, and that's what the interview is so. all about. We will also oh, touch on so supply chain problem. And, the, and the, the interview was so interesting that I want to have them back and talk more about things. He teased it and said, you watch out in about a month. What ha- was happening with the freighters off of L.A. is going to happen again. Because oh. it's coming back, and he gave me reasons why. But he wants to come back on maybe in a month and talk about supply chain. Wow, that now, would be interesting. It, it, it's going to be a great the, the so conversation. We're, we're forewarned again, huh? This is yeah. not going away. Yeah, so. Like anything, it's like COVID. It's just coming it's, back. You think it's done, and then here it is, isn't we're, it? We're in kind round of 10. We're in now. We're in round in 10 of a 15-round bout. Yeah, wow. <laughs> but, hey, there's great things happening, too. And so, um, you know, they, they took those lemons and they helped us make some lemonade with these teddy bears and children. Uh, you have some wonderful interviews happening today as well. Yes. Uh, well, speaking of rain, uh, not so much. Uh, that's not the topic. The topic today is the timing could have been better, I suppose. But Michelle Steinberg, she's the director of Wildlife Division of the National Fire Protection Agency. Mm. And she's going to talk about wildfires. Certainly they're in the uh, West right now, New Mexico, going through those. And you think maybe with all the rain, that's a good thing. But think about all the undergrowth that's happening now. And if we do get a dry summer, that's only going to make it more difficult. But she's going to talk about what you can do with your own community and your own home. And that's what I like to um, prevent. Only you can prevent forest fires. Absolutely. That was my, I coined that one. (laughs) 
Is that, a, is yeah. that a Paul Casey original? Yeah, original. Well, hey, Maybe. here's an easy thing, and I'm just going to say this because uh, an interview for the 8th coming up, we talked about people throwing cigarettes outside the car. All right, so if Perfect. you smoke, smoke. But keep the butt inside the car, right? Really? Don't throw. Because, of, like you said, even though it seems like, oh, we've got tons of rain, we had a lot of snow, you wait. July and August, it's going to be a tinderbox out sure. there. Sure. And uh, I'm also going to do a program or a reflection on something I did 20 years ago plus, and that's an interview I had with Ido Vanny. You know the name, Ken Griffey Jr. Ido Vanny was really a baseball icon here a generation or two ago, but uh, he's an interview I had, very fascinating. Mm -hmm. He was with the Seattle Rainiers, and he was in the front office of the Seattle Pilots, and I had this interview with him about uh, five or six years before he passed away, and I know a lot of people know his name out there. Um, Eric, I'm going to ask you to chime in about uh, a segment I want to do on ethics and self-employment. Sounds good. And uh, today I'm going to do the Voices of Comedy segment. I'm going to give a hint as to what it's going to be about. And think banjo. Think banjo. Think banjo. Okay. And one hit wonder for today, it's not the Beatles, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Of course, the Beatles wouldn't qualify for a one-hit wonder. They had a few hits under their belts. Just I've a couple. Yeah, they were they were pretty good for a while. But they inspired the song of this individual who did the one-hit wonder. It's kind of an interesting story. You'll hear about that later. And uh, let's see, what else? Uh, any more announcements before we get to the show? No, I think you we're ready to, to so, so to speak, rock and roll. Okay. Voices of Comedy with Steve Martin coming up in just a moment. It's like being at Shakey's Pizza all the time. You know? <laughs> I think I think people who are out of work, instead of giving them money, we should give them a banjo because it's so happy <laughs> they can just go home. And, Did you get a job today, dear? Nope. <laughs> Doesn't matter though. <laughs> Sing along, kids. I thought the banjo was the one thing that could have saved Nixon. You know if you. He went on television and went, ha, oh, everything's great. <laughs> I hate to talk about Nixon because I kind of feel sorry for him. You know, I, I have this image of him walking along the beach in San Clemente all by himself, you know, with a metal detector. <laughs> Found the quarter. <laughs> We're having some fun now, folks. The re- real thing I wanted to do tonight, I have a great joke. We can play on 100,000 people. Now, here's how it works. Right now, watching television, there's about 20 million people. And out of those 20 million, about a million of them are flipping around, trying to figure out what to watch and see who's on Carson tonight, you know. So what we do is every 10 seconds, 50,000 new people tune in. And they don't know what's happening. They just tuned in. So what we'll do is we'll wait 10 seconds, and I'll start being really weird. (laughs) 
and telling jokes that have no punchlines, you know, and you just laugh like crazy, like they're the funniest jokes you've ever heard. You know what I mean? More, this guy is great, he's a killer. And the people coming in will think they're wrong. It's like, he must be good, I don't know. Must be the new humor or something. So we'll wait 10 seconds, we'll go into it. Just about a standing ovation, that's all I'm looking for. We'll close with a big song, okay? We'll wait 10 seconds, I'll give you a cue like this and we'll go into our funny comedy joke. Won't that be fun? Okay. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. What a great crowd. Okay. Okay, got a cute story for you. Wouldn't it be funny if you went home to repair your TV and there was a banana in it? Thank you. Yeah, good Got another story for you. Hey, what a great crap. Fella comes home, opens his refrigerator. There's a clown in his refrigerator. Well, oh, no, no. he looks at the clown, the clown looks at him, the fella says, I didn't expect to see you in there. You are really fast. Not many people get that one. I know what you're gonna say. Right, sir. Steve, how can you be so funny? That's right. Steve. I like it. All right, that was Johnny Carson laughing so hard there at the end. Did you hear that? Yeah. Him laughing, and when he got into a routine. You knew you scored. And anyhow, um, that was Steve Martin, and I believe that I saw that segment. I don't know if I've seen it so many times since, right. but I actually think I did see that. And wasn't that a big deal on Johnny Carson to be brought over to the couch? Because not, especially comedians, not all of them were brought over. Very true. Mm. And you knew you made it if he invited you over to the couch. You were something special. You got it. Very good, Eric. Uh, that's really cool. Very good memory. All right, so that was Steve uh, Martin and our new Voices of Comedy. <laughs> Love it. Where would you love to live? Have you explored today's market? When I spoke with Heather Ramos, she instantly put me at ease. I'm Coach Debbie from Story U, and I recommend Heather to first time buyers or dream home shoppers and everyone in between. Let Heather's experience lead you to a perfect location and style and all within your budget. Contact Heather Ramos at Keller Williams. That's Heather Ramos at KW.com. Wildfire season is upon us, and last year it is estimated that wildfires cost this country over $40 billion, and of course, loss of life and uh, a lot of injuries. Now, many people are suggesting that there is no real wildfire season anymore, that they just run together. I think that's a bit of exaggeration, but not too much. I mean, we've had a lot of fire activity in the uh, southwest, New Mexico and California. 
I thought it would be very helpful to talk with the director of the Wildfire Division of the National Fire Protection Association, Michelle Steinberg. What can we do in our neighborhoods and communities to protect ourselves from wildfires? I mean, this area has had a very wet winter, and we think we may be immune to that, but in some ways, it actually adds fuel to the fire because of all the moss and the undergrowth. As things dry out, that again will add fuel to the fire. Let's first of all find out what the mission and history is of the National Fire Protection Agency. Michelle, what is the National Fire Protection Association? Is, it, is that part of the government or is that a nonprofit? It is a nonprofit. We're a fire and life safety organization and we work globally. So uh, we are a nonprofit organization. I see. And uh, how did you find your way to this association? Well, I've been interested in uh, natural disasters and keeping people safe and preparedness for my career. Um, worked in floodplain management in Massachusetts worked for the Federal Emergency Management Agency on how to mitigate hazards from all kinds of uh, causes, and then uh, connected with people at the National Fire Protection Association, or NFPA for short, uh, back in the late 90s um, when I started learning about wildfire from them. Wow, so you were back in the late 90s, and now uh, it's really come into a very serious problem in this uh, country and the world, for that matter. In the 90s, not so much, but now this is on the minds of everybody, especially as we head into the dry season. We're talking from Washington State, and we're a tale of two states in a sense, weather-wise. And uh, the west of the mountains, Seattle, we had a wet winter. East of the mountains, though, is in a, another situation, very, very dry winter. And um, so starting from there, we as citizens, what can we do to help prevent wildfires from, let's say, destroying our property, other people's property, and trying to keep the losses at a minimum? Well, that's exactly what the National Fire Protection Association work is trying to do, is help people get prepared and prevent losses to property and losses to life. So we, uh, we do a number of things. We have a big program called Firewise USA that engages communities in their own safety, and it's a way for people to voluntarily take action across communities on a regular basis. And then we also have our annual campaign every first Saturday in May to get people together on Wildfire Community Preparedness Day, and we try to teach folks about what it is, uh, why it is that fires can affect homes, how it is, and then what we can do to prevent the destruction of our homes and communities. So what things can we do? Well, specifically, we look at the home exterior and making sure that's in really good shape and not something that's easily um, ignitable by fire. Um, we also look at the impact of embers. Those are the fire brands, the pieces of burning material that can blow from the main part of the fire out into the community for up to a mile or more. Um, those are what's landing on our roofs in our gutters around our homes and causing you know, fires right in the community, and that's very dangerous. So the things we can do there is to make sure embers can't enter our home through openings, screening things, making sure we have good windows that aren't going to break, making sure that first five feet around the home doesn't have anything combustible, so no uh, uh, combustible mulch, plants, and that five-foot space is pretty small, you know, using different alternatives to keep fire from uh, impacting right close to your home. 
as we move out uh, into the landscape of the home to kind of thin out any heavy uh, accumulations of brush or trees um, so that those plants can stay healthy and attractive, but you're not inviting fire to grow large into the tops of trees, for example, that close to your home. What sort of things in addition to that should people be aware of? You mentioned something about the neighbors, you know, within the neighborhood, the cinders going from house to house. And um, right. you're looking at a community and you may do all the right things, but you may walk next door and someone else hasn't. So how do you, let's say, approach that person? Right. So that's what some of our work is about, you know, um, with our with our calls to action and our programs is really that neighbor to neighbor is so important because uh, we'll affect each other in the case of a wildfire. Really, once a wildfire gets into the community and starts to ignite our, our homes and, and uh, vehicles and things like that, it's really not a wildfire anymore. It's, it's something that's going to jump from, uh, as we said, spread from house to house and property to property. So it makes sense to try to get everybody to reduce the risk on their properties that are adjacent so that we can reduce the risk for the whole community. And we do that different ways. Education is the first place to start when people can look at, for example, some of the material that we have about how homes ignite and how we can reduce that risk and the science behind it. It starts to make sense for people and they're more willing to do those kinds of efforts together. You have something that I received called the ignition zone. Was that what we were just talking about in terms of around the house right. or that's that's exactly. the definition of that? Right. The home ignition zone is it's, it's taking the science and saying, okay, uh, homes don't ignite by some mysterious process. We kind of know how this works. And so if we address the condition of the outside of our homes and then the landscape right immediately around it, we've done a lot of good. We've had a lot of impact on our likelihood of the home being able to withstand uh, a wildfire. Is the wildfire season starting early this year? A lot of my colleagues in the business, you know, fire, fire service folks, fire departments, we barely even talk about a season anymore. It's a year-round issue. Um, just conditions have changed so much in the, just in the last decade, I think, that uh, we're just seeing fire behavior that's so different from maybe 20, 30 years ago. So we really have to be prepared for wildfire all year round. And, you know, right now in the southwest, they're seeing fires March, March, April, and May that are very unusual for the time of the year. So it's hard to talk about a season anymore hmm. most, most of the time. Yeah, it's pretty frightening. Uh, it's just like it seems just to be uh, getting to the territory of overwhelming, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. that can we really come to grips with this? Or it's the type of thing that, well, we just survived another season. We didn't get hit. And um, mm -hmm. we're very lucky. It kind of seems that way. I mean, we in the Seattle area, we had like three years in a row of just tremendous smoke from wildfires. And uh, of course, right. our summers are warmer. I mean, we had a temperature of 114 degrees last year. And that's very yeah. rare for here. But I guess what I'm driving at is that I just kind of think that's where we're in now, and we're just going to be lucky if it doesn't happen. Matter of fact, there was a map last year. We didn't get much smoke, but we had the prevailing winds going everywhere through the Midwest. And there was just like a tiny little pocket over the Puget Sound where we didn't get much of this fire smoke. So it wasn't a big issue for us, but it was everywhere right. else. And it's easy to ignore if it's not impacting you directly. I 
fully understand that feeling. Um, it, it, what, we, what we really are encouraging people, though, is that wildfires are really part of our environment and may seem like we're having more of them and they're worse. Um, that, that can be true in the short term, but they, they really are part of our uh, ecosystem across North America in most places. We're going to see fire. It has a job to do in nature. Um, and what we need to be aware of is this is part of living in nature is uh, recognizing the signs for when you may be having a particularly um, bad year in the sense of um, the conditions are just right to have more fire, bigger fires, or, you know, a lot of smoke. And so that people can start to do things, uh, you know, on a regular basis and, and um, make it sort of part of their common practice to have those spring cleanups around the home, have a fall cleanup if you need to, be aware of conditions, understand what it means when they the, you know, the weatherman comes on and says, it's a red flag day. You're going to need to understand that that means you have to take certain precautions, regardless of the, the time of the year, but those conditions are what's going to drive it. Michelle, where can I get more information? Uh, we have some great information at nfpa.org slash wildfire. Excellent. Anything else before we go? No, that is uh, great, and I hope that everybody stays safe and takes some precautions. Learn a little bit about what you can do, and it'll give you, it'll actually make a difference if you can take these, these into practice. Thank you to Michelle Steinberg, Director of the Wildfire Division of the National Fire Protection Association. Visit nfpa.org forward slash wildfire to find out more about things that you can do to protect your home and community from wildfires. Again, that's N as in night, F as in Frank, P as in Paul, A as in apple, dot org, forward slash wildfire. So today, we continue with our Voices in History. What do you think of that title, Eric? I like it. Or you're the yeah, one who said Voices it. of the Past. Voices of the Past. Well, we'll work on that, but yeah, I like yeah. both. Yeah. No, you mentioned <laughs> that before. I was calling yeah. it This Week in History, but I think something like that is more apropos. I think so, too. And I like the segment idea because, again, it's just uh, it, it's real quick snippets. It's fun to listen to and challenge your brain, see what your memory's like. So you've got a test for me here, right? I do. All so right. let's get your brain working now. Right. I've got enough All coffee right. in me. Good. Ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. On June 1st, 19 blank, CNN becomes the first 24-hour television news network, making the debut from its headquarters in Atlanta, the lead story, the attempted assassination of civil rights leader Vernon Jordan Jr. What was the year? I think it's the 80s, but I'm thinking 85. I'm thinking around there, 85. Eh. 1980. That early? Yep. June 1st, 1980. I just love the voice. This is CNN. Yeah, that's right. It had a huge impact, and it still is. Um, On June 1st, 1967, the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. This day, like many others in the music industry, and a lot of people have said this, is that this was the best album ever made, and I gave you the year. Yes, you did. (laughs) So I'm going to ask the month. Oh, the, oh, my gosh. Uh, 67. Uh, sounds to me like that's going to be a summertime. I'm going to say June. You know what? I think it is June, but I'm kind of making it up myself. But we'll <laughs> say like, next week whether it was or not, because I think I, I remember getting the album in June. Okay. 
So anyhow. It just seems like one of those summertime songs that would have been all over the place. Right. <clears throat> all right, let's move to, uh, let's see, June 2nd, and this would be 18 blank. The American Civil War ended. I think that was 1865. Bam. Got it. Oh, got it. All right. That's not an ant. That's a bam. <laughs> bam. We got to get better sound effects here <laughs> rather than this. Good job. So you've got two. All right. All right. On June 4th, 19 blank, Congress passes the 19th Amendment giving women the right to vote. Oh, boy. I'm going to be in trouble if I don't get this one. Let's see. Yeah, no pressure, Eric. No pressure. I think. Uh, 1918. You're close. 1919. Oh, okay. All right. That hurts. Two for two. Or two for... F- no, I think you got three. No, no, you just missed that one. That's two. right. Yeah, two for two. All right. All right. On June 5th, 19 blank, Senator Robert Kennedy is shot in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles after winning the California presidential primary. He died, unfortunately, the following day. Would that be 68? Got it. All right. You're above 500. Above 500. You're doing better than the Mariners. Come on, Mariners. All right. On June 5th, 19 blank, Frank Franklin Delano Roosevelt takes the United States off the gold standard. June 5th, 19 blank. I think it had something to do with the market crash. I'm going to say 1932. Very close. 1933. Dang. You know, that's good. I need to now, get on Jeopardy. Yeah. I, I wouldn't win, but I'd come. I'd be, not, I wouldn't, not maybe not last. <laughs> now, this one's going to be tough, uh, but why not? We're having fun here. On June 5th, 19 blank, Elvis rocks on the Milton Berle show. Elvis. Elvis Milton Berle. That's okay. So it's a little bit later. I would say 66. Ah, that one. You're off some. 1956. Okay. So, okay. Yeah, was, that's when he was just kind of coming out. So I, I don't know why it was Milton Berle. It was always Ed Sullivan. I always that's what I was thinking. Ed him. Sullivan. But okay. I feel the same way. I, I didn't realize that was a little bit. Those are great ones. I love that. We got to right. keep doing that. So, okay. This week in history, there you go. Voices and, of Blank. Voices of Blank. Voices of uh, name to be inserted later. Right. I like it. Okay. <laughs> right. So there we good. go. Um, so we'll be back with your interview in just a moment. Sounds good. When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. And welcome to today's Spotlight on Success. I'm Eric Cream, and I'm speaking with Brian Burke, who is Chief Growth Officer for Seco Logistics. He's joining us via Zoom, and so let's welcome him to the studios. Brian, how are you today? Eric, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. Really appreciate it. Now, you're out of Chicago, correct? 
That's right. Uh, our global headquarters is in Chicago. Uh, today, I happen to be in Orlando, um, as our, our world of logistics kind of happens everywhere. But uh, yes, headquartered in Chicago. I bet when people say to you, yeah, I travel for my job, you, you must laugh. <laughs> you, you must travel everywhere. It usually leads to some interesting conversations, that's for sure. <laughs> well, Orlando this time of year is not bad. Uh, no, can't complain. Uh, can't complain at all. Well, let's get into the conversation. I wanted to interview you because of some involvement that SECO has, not some, a lot, with an event that I will talk about here in a minute. It's called Operation Teddy Bear Lift. And uh, But before we get there, let's familiarize the audience with what SECO Logistics is and what it does and maybe your role in it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the chief growth officer uh, at, at SECO Logistics. And you know, we, we are basically a global logistics company. So we help companies here in the United States and elsewhere around the world with imports, exports, air freight, ocean freight, ground transportation, white glove deliveries, e-commerce logistics. We move everything from, from parcels to pallets all around the world. Uh, and we've been doing this for over 40 years when we started with one location in Chicago. Now we're in 40 countries with 120 locations, including in Seattle. Uh, and uh, we're, we're, we're continuing to grow and evolve and expand. Um, and, and especially over the past couple of years, there's been some very challenging times from congestion and capacity issues for all types of companies that are importing, exporting, and moving goods around the United States. And navigating through those turbulent times has been a challenge, but this is why companies come to companies like ours to help them navigate through those challenges. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for that information. You know, I think about when I go to the grocery store, Actually, going kind of way back, uh, I remember someone saying to me that people in other countries don't just simply go to a grocery store and see all of this product, right? Uh, that it's sort of unique to the U.S., particularly some of the, say, Eastern Bloc countries at that time. And, and now, as we see empty shelves here and there on various products, it's very foreign to us. And people get frustrated. But when you think about the amazing task from getting, say, a product from the origination to the end retailer, that's an amazing process. Absolutely. If you if we could all think back to what it was like in April and May of 2020 um, to find, you know, N95 masks mm. or even, you know, things like toilet paper to where we are today with uh, continued challenges with semiconductors and baby formula, um, you know, the global disruption uh, that was already going on that, that just got exacerbated by the global pandemic um, is not letting up. Uh, there are continued challenges. And uh, as we all know, you know, a, a supply chain is a chain. And the reason why we use that phrase supply chain is because it's only as strong as its weakest link. Mm -hmm. And when you have countries shut down, when you have cities shut down, when you have um, wars going on, um, you know, a lot of those weaker links break and, and that has a ripple effect and the butterfly effect really, you know, name your analogy. Uh, it's probably appropriate to describe what's happening in global supply chain. Has to be an amazing process of just rolling with various punches throughout the years and, and weeks and months. As, as you say, the world is always changing. So it would seem too that your job changes. Yeah. You know, I'm the chief growth officer. So you asked about my role. So I'm responsible for growing our company and, um, you know, and then the pandemic hit. So yeah, it, it, there are, there are challenges, but it's how you overcome them. You know, we say it's not how many times you get hit, but it's how fast you get back up. Right. So, mm -hmm. and that, and that's really it for every company out there. Their supply chain is constantly getting hit. So how do you get back up? How do you recover? And the global pandemic COVID-19, it wasn't the first disruption to your point. 
you know, you go way back, the global financial crisis was a, a disruptive event. The Fukushima tsunami and earthquake, that was a disruptive event for a lot of supply chains. Um, you know, the, the West Coast uh, port strikes uh, were, were disruptive for a lot of supply chains in the past. Um, and, and, you know, name, name the list. And there's a lot of things that have happened over the course of, you know, the past 20 to 30 years as supply chains have become more global and interconnected. It's just that with the pandemic, it seemed to all happen at once. You know, we got all those previous disruptions all happening at the same mm -hmm. time or at different times in different countries. And, you know, if you were importing, if you had your goods manufactured in Vietnam, for example, you know, last year, you had three months where you weren't making any products. So uh, hopefully you had inventory and hopefully now you're catching up. But that's just a small example of uh, a lot of challenges that companies face today. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But I do want to put a spotlight on on a big reason why I wanted you uh, to talk about Seco and, and the company itself, because I want to give you a lot of kudos to you and your team. Uh, our sister station, Warm 106.9, is also known as the Teddy Bear Patrol Station. And this is a situation where we would team with the local retailer, in this case, Bartels, and people would go in and purchase new bears, and then we would donate those to first responders here in this area. So if they came upon an accident or maybe it was a domestic dispute or something like that where they're reacting to a situation where children are involved, the first responders could give a teddy bear to that child just to comfort them in the moment. Well, COVID really upended that because of being able to pass these things out and the masks and, and worried about, you know, spreading COVID. So uh, what happened is we ended up with a lot of teddy bears uh, in warehouse there at Bartels. And through a long, <laughs> I won't go into the whole story, but uh, basically through the Ukrainian Association of Washington State, we learned of SECO and the work that you do, the wonderful charitable work that you do as part of your corporate edict. So that was introduced to Frank, who introduced me to you and other team members. And it's amazing that you have helped us now. We're going to take 10,000 bears and we're going to send them to Ukraine, to a war-torn region. You want to talk about a difficult process. It's, it's, it's taking these amount of items, getting them by truck to plane, to truck, to a war zone, and then distributed. And I can't thank you and your team enough, Seiko. Uh, it's just amazing. So thank you. Thank you for, uh, you know, putting the spotlight on this because, uh, you know, we, we, we are supporting charities uh, and uh, we're supporting the people in Ukraine. And the more we get to spread the word about this, um, the more uh, awareness and action that can come as a result, because we're actively fundraising for an, uh, an organization called Airlink that is supporting all charities mm. with finding available air capacity to ship urgent humanitarian aid and relief uh, to Ukraine. So you can find that on our website on seekologistics.com. But, but ultimately, when the war started, we were called to action and we raised our hand and, and really broadcast to everyone, uh, on, including on our LinkedIn, that we'll ship anything to Ukraine for free. If you're a nonprofit, if you want to get goods to Ukraine, we will ship it for free. And that was kind of an open-ended invitation. So we got a lot of inquiries, mm -hmm. a lot of requests. Uh, we're fielding a lot of them. We got much better at you know really how we organize and mobilize because we recognize we're a global logistics company. So we have a unique uh, opportunity to actually do a lot of good really quickly because we know how to move product across borders. We know how to move product into Ukraine. And so we were able to mobilize quickly. We've uh, since donated $150,000 of in-kind uh, contributions of donated transportation. We got started working with Airlink, who I mentioned earlier, that does provide a lot of 
that air freight capacity um, for nonprofits for free or discounted rates, which has been hugely, uh, tremendously helpful for nonprofits as well. From the UK, we're doing mostly bigger, bulkier items like uh, sleeping bags, mm-hmm. uh, uh, pillows, uh, blankets, coats. Um, and, but from the US, we've been doing almost exclusively medical supplies, urgent medical equipment, gauze, tourniquets, bandages uh, to support all the hospitals in Ukraine. And it is a challenge, uh, especially in the past couple of weeks. If, if you think you know we're dealing with fuel uh, challenges, mm-hmm. which we are, but imagine Ukraine where their fuel depots are being targeted and there are serious shortages of fuel, which creates a lot of uh, challenges. Plus a lot of the truck drivers can't physically leave the country without permits, without mm-hmm. approvals, because uh, all males between the ages of 18 and 60 are not able to leave the country, but there are special circumstances like in transportation where they are allowed to, but the requirements now are going up because they're really trying to, to keep a hold on you know, defending their their, their, their homeland. So it, it's been a challenge, but we recognize during COVID um, that uh, we have a unique opportunity. Uh, we did the same thing. We actually purchased our own PPE because of the lack of federally coordinated supply chain around PPE mm. to support medical frontline workers. So we were called to action then, and uh, we were inspired again to, to do more this time around when the war broke out in Ukraine. Yeah, and again, just a wonderful corporate um uh, mission that you have, and certainly timely. Uh, these 10,000 bears are really just to bring awareness to the suffering of children there. They will go into the hands of children who are orphaned in hospital and just displaced by the war itself. But on the side, we're really raising money to help UAWS, which is the Ukraine Association of Washington State. So if you go to uaws.org, you can learn about um, this mission, this Teddy Bear, Operation Teddy Bear Lift. Really what we're doing, though, is raising money for neonatal incubators, which are, are, are of huge need with, as you said, the destruction of things like clinics and hospitals. So um, if, you, if you are so inclined, we would love for donations to go to uaws.org and find out the great work that SECO uh, is doing at SECOlogistics.com. That's S-E-K-O logistics.com. SecoLogistics.com to learn more about the company. It is an amazing company, and uh, lots of people work there, don't they? You've certainly grown. Yeah, we have. We're more than two thousand people strong. Uh, we're two billion in revenue, um, but you know we're 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 large enough to scale, but we're also small enough to care. And especially when it comes to things like uh, supporting children, um, you know, with with this initiative, uh, it's been uh, absolutely heart wrenching to hear the stories of what's happening of of, of orphanages and, and people become kids becoming orphaned, uh, you know, anything that we can do to help and alleviate um, any of the pain and suffering, or at least help the hospitals get what they need or um, give, give the kids, uh, you know, still in Ukraine, you know, just even if a, a brief smile, we're, there you um, go. we're happy to help. And, and, you know, a lot of, we've seen a lot of inquiries from a lot of places around the country in the U S and you, you'll notice that a lot of the activity from Pennsylvania to Chicago to Florida and Washington is coming from the Ukrainian American community that have really become mobilized. And it's been really heartwarming to see um, the, the help and support from especially the, the community in, in, in the state of Washington. So um, we're happy to play a small role in, in getting uh, humanitarian aid and relief to Ukraine from communities here in the United States. Well, unfortunately, Brian, we're out of time on today's program. I really wanted to talk about sort of those supply chain issues. Um, I'm hoping I can have you back maybe in a month or so, and we can talk a little bit more about that. 
Absolutely. Shanghai is opening up. So, uh, you know, stay tuned because the congestion issues we saw at the Port of LA Long Beach with the volume of ships now going to start to come over, um, you know, that'll be very timely for your listeners. Perfect. Okay. We'll definitely reschedule that uh, to talk more about uh, the business end of what SECO does to uh, make sure that it's getting product all around the world on time, delivered in the correct way. So thanks again, Brian, for all your help with uh, our promotion that we're doing, our campaign for the teddy bears, and best of luck to the company as you continue to help build the growth within that company. Absolutely. Thanks again for having us. You've got it. And to learn more again, ladies and gentlemen, just uh, log on to sekologistics.com, sekologistics.com, Seco, Seco Logistics. Take a look at it. It's a fascinating company and company doing wonderful things right now. What a great corporate mission they have. SEKOlogistics.com. We'll be back with another edition next week of Spotlight on Success. Be sure to tune in next week for another interesting conversation. Until then, best to you and yours. And you know what, Paul? We are back, and this is live. I'm looking out the window, a little bit gray right now. I'm sure a lot of people are seeing that. Uh, but I've also had recently a chance to look at your book, Pre-Flight Checklist, um, Is Self-Employment for You? And, you know, I was, I was thumbing through it as I was uh, looking at it the other day, and it came upon the three points of ethics and integrity. Ethics is always interesting to me because it's, it's not like a skill that you learn, you, you study, you learn, you master this skill. It's, it's a constant. You're always trying to be ethical, right? Yeah, I think that people need to strive for that, and it's a good human characteristic to have anyhow. However, to me, it's money in the bank, too, when you're in business, because tell me in history when unethical people, and you watch them for a period of time, it always comes around to bite them in the you-know-what at some point. Yes. And all is lost. And so just from a selfish point of view, if for no other reason, hmm. trust your gut, be ethical. And um, when I go to the trust your gut part of running a business, there are about two or three times in my business where I didn't trust my gut about this individual, thought they were kind of unethical, but I needed the money. Well, hmm. guess what? I took that step and I paid dearly for it. Almost lost my business twice wow. through these type of not reviewing that person or looking past it. I knew these people were ethically challenged in both cases. One was very serious. I lost a ton of money. Hmm. And the other one was slightly, uh, you know, a uh, pain, but I was able to recover very quickly. But you learn that. And I'm just saying that, uh, again, it's, it's good to be able to count on people for the obvious reasons because life is better, mm -hmm. but it's also a very pragmatic reason. Be ethical and seek out ethical people. Absolutely. There you go. All right. That's our little, uh, let's say, vignette for today in terms of going into business for yourself that I think uh, you should really ask yourself that before you take that step. And do your pre-flight checklist. Perfect. That's one of them. A true Seattle baseball legend, Ido Vanny, is with us this morning on Profiles of Experience. He grew up in Seattle, attending Queen Anne High School, and had the first hit 
first stolen base and scored the first run at 6 Seattle Stadium that stood in the heart of Rainier Valley between 1939 and 1978. He was a player on three championship Seattle Rainier baseball teams of the Pacific Coast League. He was also manager and general manager in later years of the Seattle Rainiers. He was also the director of sales for the Seattle Pilots during their one and only major league year in the Pacific Northwest. Good morning, Mr. Vanny, and welcome to Profiles of Experience. Do you think Seattle proved it was a baseball town last fall? I've always said that Seattle was a baseball town from back in the golden areas of 1939, 40, and 41, when Mr. Sick took over the franchise and built a new stadium out there in Rainier Valley called Sick Stadium. I've always said if you give Seattle a winner, the people would go out in the cow pasture to watch you play. What did you make as a player for the Rainiers in 1939? In 1939, I made $250 a month, plus $3 a day meal money, which wasn't an awful lot, but I had a lot of incentive clauses in my contract. Well, what do you think about player salaries today? Well, I, I think the player salaries might be a little out of line, but if they keep getting out of line, even if we build a new stadium, they're going to have to scale the house seats, prices of the seats to accommodate the salaries that are going to come in because those uh, those suites up there, not everybody's going to be able to go up there and sit in those suites. You've got to think of the poor soul that brings a wife and uh, four kids to a ball game. They've got to have seats for those people to come. They're the best salesmen you got around. And if they can't go to the ball game, who's going to go? Do you think the uh, baseball strike permanently hurt baseball? I think it did, and I certainly hope that it doesn't ever happen again. If they do, if they have another baseball strike, they might as well pack up and find a good padlock for these doors on these stadiums because the people will not put up with it. Why do you think that baseball is so enduring and so popular? Well, it's always been a popular game because it's a simple game. The rules haven't changed in 100 years except for this DH that they have, and uh, it's the same confines. You're still playing the same game with the bat and ball and the glove. And the fundamentals of the game are still the same. If you want to bunt, you've got to be able to bunt a guy over. You've got to hit and run or a stolen base. The only thing that I'd say that it's upgraded to baseball is probably the playing fields that they have today. And probably the uh, uniforms. You played in those wool suits that were, I imagine, extremely hot. We'd go into Sacramento. The temperature would be 115, 118, 120, and you play in those wool suits. And, boy, it was hot. Yeah, we had a 200-game schedule in those days. We played uh, uh, a week in each town, which was, uh, which was a good thing because you could unpack your clothes and you could set up house like you wanted, you know, and you'd be going to the ballpark each day and you'd probably face one pitcher on Tuesday and you'd see him again on Sunday or Saturday night, which was very helpful. And you learned to, to set up schedules on your own little scorecard, how this guy pitched me and got me out the time before. How am I going to hit him again on Saturday night or Sunday? Well, what was your favorite team that you played on and why? Well, my favorite team that I played on here in Seattle was the 1940 team. As a team and as a unit, they played together with good teamwork. And to me, the 1940 team was probably the best one that, that I had here. And I also was associated with many other pennant winners here in Seattle. Baseball legend, Ed Vanny, thank you very much for spending time in Voices of Experience. Thank you, Paul. We are coming back. We got all right. 
Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, but uh, a couple of comments on that Ido Vanny interview. I did that in the late 1990s, right here in the studios mm. at Kixie um, on a Sunday morning with Jim Day. And uh, it's fascinating, and Eric, you heard some of the interview and the conversation, but he was making $200 a month wow. uh, to play baseball. It's changed slightly <laughs> since then, but the game is still the same. And uh, it was interesting, he was talking about a strike that had just happened in 1994, and he said, if this ever happens again, it'll destroy baseball. And I think a lot of people feel that way, and that's why strikes to the level they had then hasn't occurred, Mm -hmm. because baseball really did suffer. So they listened to Ido Vanny. And before Ido Vanny, it was or actually before Ken Griffey Jr., couple generations ago, it was Ido Vanny. He was the baseball man in this town. Grew up in Queen Anne Hill, lived here his entire life. Pretty amazing guy. I just see them traveling around town to town, spending a, a week in each town. I'm sure they got to know the local watering holes. They probably, um, you know, the, he was talking about being in Sacramento in the 100-plus heat with the wool uniform on. Uh, and doing, you said double headers. I mean, yeah, 200 games. You had to burn 4,000 calories a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and think about it, too. They were traveling by train then. Oh, sure, sure. I sure. think so because, really, I don't think train travel, excuse me, planes travel came in for baseball late 40s or early 50s. Now, we have to look at that. Well, and our highways some. weren't that great either. Wasn't that really the 50s when the highways? Yeah, that's true. Eisenhower. Um, yeah, so, time, so. Uh, I would imagine train, certainly up and down the West Coast, would probably be. Yep. You know, Paul, I have to say, for the first live show that we've done, this is something we want to do, what, once a month? I'd like to do it more than that, but let's okay. start with once a month. Okay. Yeah, we can um, do this. Pretty dang good show. And, yeah. And thanks to Eric Ryder yes. over on the other side Thank of the screens. Thank you very much. He's surrounded by computer screens and buttons. And, and, and we walked in. There was a minute in between our show and the last show, yeah. and he's just on it. You know, I, I mean, I'm sitting there still going on my particular program. We're about an hour before going, what did we do here and there? But yes, well, Eric, like the old saying, job. this is not his first rodeo. That's true. No, no. Eric, how him. long have you been here? Oh, uh, here as in Hubbard no. Radio? Yeah, well, uh, with uh, with the, 11.50 a.m. Yeah, yeah it's uh, about uh, 22 years now. Amazing. Yeah, And that's one thing I found out, whether it's um, Sandusky or Hubbard or whatever. Mm-hmm. The staff here, the longevity is, amazes me. And, and I've been to a lot of radio stations across the country. My life doing media buying, I went to a lot of them. But here I'd walk in like after 6, 10, 12 years later. It's still here. Yeah. Benny's still here. Eric's still here. You're we, still here. We've been really lucky. Yeah. You know, the companies that have owned us have been really good. Hubbard. Radio is amazing, family-owned company out of uh, Minnesota. Um, and, uh, you know, all companies have had a tough two years, for sure. And uh, like everyone else, they tightened their belts, but they did what they could to keep as many on and, and keep people uh, surviving, right? So yeah. you got to admire that. you got to have some loyalty. But I think part of it, too, and I'll, I defer this to Eric, is we get to do real radio here, in my opinion. Live, get, get to be creative. Um, get to make mistakes here and there, and it's not just canned. It's not syndicated in. This is we're looking. If you turned around, you'd see the Olympic Mountains, downtown Seattle. You know, Actually, Eric, it's cloudy. I guess I can see. Yeah, a little if you got to crank yes. it a little bit more. That's right. Okay. 
but we're here is right. the point. That's right. No, it's we're here. Very good point, and uh, it really shows. So, anyhow, um, then you put me on the air too, and that was a real stretch. I know that. <laughs> so, uh, let's see. We got a couple minutes to go, but uh, first, I just wanted to say that this show does air Voices of Experience on Wednesdays at three o'clock p.m. If you're listening now, and it's simulcast with the Hubbard sister station, KKNW, 1150 a.m. Then Voices of Experience is rebroadcast on Kixie only on Sundays at 11 o'clock a.m. So, uh, again, my name is Paul Casey, and uh, my thanks to Eric Crema for doing such a wonderful job today, and, of course, Eric Ryder. And, again, we'll be back next week with uh, much more great information from Voices, and I'm trying to get a gentleman by the name of Jim Fuda. You may have heard of him. But uh, he's done a lot of interacting with the media with um, what's going on during homelessness and things like that. I'm going to ask him about how you can protect yourself and your children during this time of assault weapons and all the other things that are going on. And that's a goal I want to have. So have a great, wonderful uh, rest of the week. All right. For this week's One Hit Wonder. But before I get to that, I want to read this from a very well-known artist. It's easy to write a song. It's hard to write a song that people like. Willie Nelson. All right, for this week's One Hit Wonder, it goes back to a song by the Beatles. Of course, they're not a one-hit wonder band. They recorded a song called Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Fred, the composer, thought the title was Lucy in Disguise with Diamonds when he first heard the song. In January 1968, this song reached number one in the U.S. and also achieved that position in Germany, Switzerland, and Australia. From 1967, Louisiana-based John Fred and his Playboy band, Judy in Disguise with Diamonds.
Just take your glasses 